Hey, Camp Kids. Welcome back to the Camp Kids Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Bob, and I'm on a mission to bring together a community of camp people from all around the world. Whether you are currently in your camp experience or it's been a while since you've been at camp, when you're with us, you're at home. Today, I am giving you my full review and my notes that I took while I was reading a camp book called Children's Nature, The Rise of the American Summer Camp by Leslie Paris. This was a book that was actually given to me to borrow from one of my friends, Ace. If you've heard the episode with Ace and Trotter, then a couple of them now, one where I interviewed them both, and then another where I recapped their wedding. They actually gave it to me for their wedding to be able to read and enjoy. And I found so much enjoyment and so many fun things in it. I really had no idea about the history of how the rise of camp came into the United States. So it was really a unique and interesting read. So here are some of my biggest takeaways from studying this book. So the first thing that I wrote down was, for well over a century, summer camps have provided many American children's first experience of community beyond their immediate family and home in their neighborhoods. And I think that that is still very true today, especially now, since we become so isolated with our technology that when people do go to summer camp for the first time, whether it's a day camp setting or a resident camp setting, oftentimes that is the first step that they're taking away from their home life or from their inner community that they've grown up in their entire lives. So I think that that's just a good reminder for all of us to remember that oftentimes when we have a first time camper, it's not only just their first time going to camp, it's also their first time outside of their community in that way. Camp activities make children better fit for the year to come. And I think that that's Oh my gosh, so more true now more than ever, especially since if you're doing a resident camp experience, the activity level is so much more than what is required in normal everyday life. I just thought that that was so interesting that they were writing that even like over 100 years ago. Camps are suited to teach children the arts of social actualization and good citizenship. I think that that's still very suited today. Uh, we do a little bit of social teaching, I know, in the schools that I teach in. However, it's not a huge part of the curriculum, so it definitely takes you out of your element and teaches those social skills that are definitely lacking. When camps began, families were happy when their children came back with gained weight, a very different perspective than we have nowadays. So when camps were first started in the late 1800s, it was said that a lot of the kids that went to camp were underfed and they needed to go to gain muscle and to gain weight. So they would send them off for the summer and they would come back with a gained weight and healthy. And it's like, oh my gosh, now with the obesity epidemic going on in our society, it's almost the opposite. Like you send your kid to camp and they're a little bit more lean, they're a little bit more toned because of the activity level. So I find it very interesting that that was the original reasoning why they sent them. For those who can afford to travel, in the time away from paid labor, camping became a means of recapturing. However, briefly, the early pioneers' bravery and independence. Coming from a facility that really, really idolized and practiced the pioneer culture and experience, I really loved that. That That's essentially what this camp experience has always been about. And I think that's good to know, too, as the camping experience evolves and as we get more technologically savvy, but the idea of camp is to always just kind of take a step back in time. It doesn't always have to be back to the pioneer times per se without electricity and running water, but it is taking a step back and living a little bit more simply than the time that we're living in now.
Camp Pine Lands was funded in 1902 near Camp Esquam. I just wanted to point that out because that was the first documented camp that was found by a woman. The first summer camps were islands, illustrating the limits of democratic inclusion and the degree of which American culture was deeply fragmented. I found that that sentence was super powerful, especially that since most of the camps that first started in the American camp movement were up in the Northeast, more specifically by New York. So a lot of them, they put them on islands because it really did help with that seclusion of what I like to call the real world. Getting young boys getting young teenage boys involved in camp helped them develop masculinity even in the 1850s because even at that time they believed that cities and society in general was making them too feminine or too soft i laugh at that because it's like we still haven't changed our paradigm from that i know a lot of people are saying oh yeah we're becoming soft as a society in general taking out masculinity out of that entirely because of everything that we've used to progress and it's like i think that that's so funny that They were looking at the urban experience as making it less masculine or making people more soft in the long run. And they sent them camping to make them more manly or more tough. Jean Jacques Rousseau thought that cities were developmentally appropriate for children and that as they matured, they would be more ready for them. I think that's super interesting. And I like the idea of the concept of children are more developmentally suited for the rural environment and not for the urban environment. And oftentimes, I mean, obviously the urban environment has more population, so therefore you're gonna see more children in the urban environment. I just thought that that was super interesting that he said that, and I wonder how much more validity that has to it today. The earliest boys camp was found in 1861, and it was actually more of like an interactment of life of a Civil War soldier. Even in the earliest camps, they thought that camper leadership was important. I thought that that was so awesome. The biggest takeaway that I have from that was the progression of canoeing. So essentially, they described that before you could even canoe, you had to become a water dog, which was a master of swimming and diving. And then you would have to buy the materials from camp using the camp economy system, which I thought was awesome. And then you had to make your own canoe. And then after you had gotten all the basic water skills, you could swim. You bought your supplies, you built the canoe. At that point, you could go canoeing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. I love that so, so, so much. It's teaching so many skills that are so transferable out into the real world. And so it's like, I would love to see, maybe not essentially building a canoe, since most people don't go to camp all summer long and have a camp economy and everything set up. But I would love to see things on a much, much smaller scale being done at our camps today. Even in 1917, a 14-year-old wrote, the children that went home Monday cried as if their hearts would break and thought of leaving behind the time of their lives. I mean, every time I leave a camp experience, I also cry as well. I remember sitting on the ferry going from Bainbridge to Seattle after I had just experienced my resident camp experience this last summer in Washington. I was crying along, along the ferry ride. I mean, it really was heartbreaking, even though I just spent only nine days out there. I really appreciated that this book portrayed a realistic picture of the gender gap and racial discrimination, even pointing out organizations like the Girl Scouts, who I'm very involved with today, blocking black girls from attending camp. I think that that was super important to be able to add in there, not to just paint a rainbow picture of, oh yeah, it's always been inclusive when clearly our history shows otherwise. There was a Vermont camp 
1920 that promised that even a single summer of camp would do more to develop the finer, sweeter, healthier qualities of girlhood than years of indulgent or stern parental guidance. I thought that that was a really neat quote too, and one that I still agree with today. In the 1920s is when recreation was becoming increasingly accepted as a worthwhile pleasure in itself, rather than just a justified means towards self-reform. Well-to-do parents considered camps more convenient repositories for their children when they were not in boarding school. So I can kind of see that shift as well from when the camping movement started. It was more of self-reform, self-learning who you are and making yourself better and then kind of putting them as repositories. I mean, there's still a lot of that going on today, I would say as well. The book also suggests that the Girl Scouts set up was the first national camping guidelines for their organization, which I thought was super duper cool that they were the first ones that did that. It also notes that camping in the 1920s helped bridge the gap between families of different faiths, essentially Jewish and Gentiles, especially in the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scout camping continued to be a meaningful bridge to the emergence of new and unupbridged generation. So I thought that that was super cool that camping helped bridge those gaps as well. Camps broadened children's circles of connection, enabling them to make friends with others from outside their neighborhoods and sometimes their own ethnic and religious groups. Once again, that kind of highlights what we had just said as well. Special camp names testified to new identities and experiences, asserting children's disjunction from ordinary life while illustrating their active participation in making camps into special spaces of personal transformation. Nicknames also ritualized new ways of thinking about family and kinship outside of its traditional bounds. If you've heard any of my podcast episodes on camp names, you know that I am a huge advocate for camp names, and I believe that the statement that was stated in this book about that just directly correlates to that as well. Now, something silly that I saw that I wanted to point out was that they had these things called baby parties or topsy-turvy days, where essentially the counselors acted as babies and the campers acted as adults. I thought that that was really interesting. While the book notated that some of these things went way too far, I think that that's kind of a fun way to play on student leadership or camper leadership as well. I love seeing that these traditions at camp, like the color war and weenie roast and toasting marshmallows, have been around for over 100 years. That really is a long-standing tradition for us in camping. I also spent a lot of time talking about homesickness as well. Even in the early days, there was still a lot of homesickness, and there weren't always the best practices to follow through with homesickness either. This book is very open about how minstrel shows and Native American play was a big part of camp especially in the interwar years, meaning the time between World War I and World War II. There is more information that you can read about that in the book. There is also documentation that this is slightly turned around in the 30s and 40s by having Native Americans and African American families visit and teach their cultures at camp. I thought that was really powerful that some camps, not all camps, but some camps did do that to try and incorporate their cultures in as well. Now, I will say the Girl Scouts didn't have documentation that they did a great job of doing this at first. Instead of taking on the national stance of segregation in camps, they left it up to individuals' councils, which remain segregated or limited campers of color. And unfortunately, that is kind of the way that I see councils operate as well today. The national Girl Scouts doesn't always take a stance, and so it leaves it up to the individual councils to make decisions, regardless if it's of race or socioeconomical status. And I do see that in ways that benefit and see that ways that put girls at a disadvantage. 
So I thought that was interesting that the book kind of left off on that note as well. But overall, I absolutely loved reading about this. It also had pictures that were included, lots of resources, lots of documentation. It really was an awesome read. So if you're interested in learning about the history of the American camp movement, I would check out Children's Nature. Go ahead and buy it. It's a really nice read. I'll probably end up rereading it at some point again as well. All right, Camp Kids, those were my biggest notes and takeaways from that book. If you liked this episode or if you like the style of episode, kind of a book club review, make sure to tell me, send me a direct message or like, comment, share. Tell us that you like these episodes and maybe even suggest some more books along the way. If you dug this episode or if you're digging the Camp Kids podcast, don't forget to leave us a review, preferably a five-star rating so that others can also find our podcast. Next week, I will be bringing you an interview by a camp consultant who also runs their own camp consulting company, talking about how you can best fundraise and do other things for your organization. All right, camp kids, that is all that I have for you today, but remember that this is good night and not goodbye.